Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and we have a guest with us who is very knowledgeable in an area that's dear to my heart. And anybody who listens to this show a lot knows that, obviously, intimate partner violence is a large uh, part of what we talk about and some of the research that we cover. But there are two components of IPV that I don't think get very much attention. One of those is for women who are victims of IPV who are married to very wealthy men, And the other one of those that I think is neglected are rural women. And I think a lot of our policies, a lot of our uh, help, a lot of our thinking about IPV has to do with urban and suburban areas. And those rural folks, I think, get left out of the mix. And fortunately for us, we have researchers like Dr. Walter DeCassaretti, who has taken on the topic and is looking at the differences and the variations in intimate partner violence and sexual assault um, with people depending on their geographic um, density. So welcome. Uh, And is it okay if I call you Walter? Please do. Please do. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I contacted you because of a study that you had out uh, called Intimate Violence Against Rural Women, the Current State of Sociological Knowledge. And it turns out that you have this huge body of research, and you just sent me one called Urban, Suburban, and Rural Variations in Separation, Divorce, Rape, Sexual Assault Results from the National Crime Victimization Survey. So the first thing I want to ask you is, you're a professor of sociology, why did you decide to go into this particular area for research? Well, the rural research, um, well, it's actually interesting. I'm Canadian, and I moved from Ottawa, Ontario. I was teaching at a very large doctoral institution. I moved to Ohio University in, in Athens, Ohio, which is located in rural southeast Ohio. And it became very clear to me from talking to a number of people that you know there was a lot of violence against women in the rural areas uh, surrounding Ohio University, remote rural areas. And I was also interested in the issue of separation and divorce because separated women are at a six-fold risk, higher risk, I should say, of being killed than those in marital and cohabiting relationships. So what I wanted to do was examine whether rural women um, who want to leave, are in the process of leaving, uh, are trying to leave or who have left, are at higher risk of separation, divorce, assault, than are their urban and uh, suburban counterparts. So I thought I'd combine Uh, a couple of topics, and I applied for a a grant from the U.S. Justice Department, and I did, I I was successful at getting it, and I did a qualitative study. In other words, I interviewed 43 women, all of whom were at very high risk of being killed. You can't do a survey in in rural areas. You just can't. And um, I uncovered just an alarming amount of uh, information, just very, very disturbing information. Uh, And 80% of the 43 women experienced multiple forms of abuse, economic abuse, uh, psychological abuse, destruction of prized possessions, harming their pets, 
sexual assault, and the, the sexual assaults were extremely brutal, and so were the acts of physical violence. And what happened, I started publishing the results. There was great interest because this was the very first U.S. study of its kind and one of the first in the world. And some people doubted the uh, generalizability of the results. In other words, people were saying, okay, you've uncovered this in three rural southeast Ohio counties, but can your findings be generalized across the United States? So I teamed up with... um, a very good friend and colleague, Callie Renison, who revised the National Crime Victimization Survey, also known as the NCVS, and that's the second oldest survey in the United States. The oldest is the census. And I asked her at a conference, I said, Callie, do you think we we could examine, um, you know, intimate status relationship variations um, by... um, place and she said yep absolutely and so we did and lo and behold we discovered that not only are separated and divorced women at higher risk of experiencing violence but rural women um, in any type of relationship here in the United States are at higher risk than are their suburban and urban counterparts and I, I think this is one of the most important findings in in the study of violence against women. Okay, well, let's, Walter, let's talk about that. Were you able to try and determine or come up with hypotheses of why there are greater risks? Yes, Um, and this is where, you know, rich in-depth interviews and quantitative data um, merge. You know, you need quantitative data to find out the extent and distribution of the problem, and then the qualitative data, the rich in-depth interviews give you, you know, rich context. You can talk to someone for a long time and they can describe things that you couldn't uncover in a survey. So the problem... flushes out the numbers. Yes, it does. It flushes out the numbers. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because especially today, I mean, you telephone surveys are really problematic because people are bombarded by telemarketers and they really don't want to answer the phone and response rates have dropped significantly. Uh, so you're not going to get as much it's good. It's so easy to lie on those, on those things. I mean, sometimes I'm annoyed and I'll just give any answer. You know, yeah, I'm in the 22 to 28 demographic. Ha ha. You know, I mean, it, it's very right. easy to get false data and you have no way of checking it. You have no way of knowing. But when you're sitting there, talking with somebody, you're more likely to get some some real true information. Yes, absolutely. Um, So what we found when we look at both the quantitative and the qualitative data, there are a number of factors that put rural women at high risk of all types of abuse. There's geographic isolation, um, an absence of services. Many women barriers to service, um, and fewer social support resources that are available uh, compared to um, urban and suburban areas, and um, so lack of public transportation. Uh, Many rural women are uninsured. In fact, rural women are less likely to be insured in this country 
receiving health insurance than our urban and suburban residents, which restricts their access to physical and mental health care services. And um, you've got, we've uncovered, and other researchers have too, um, strong evidence of what we call a rural old boys network, Um, these subcultures that consist of abusers, criminal justice officials, businessmen, and, 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 and others that, that protect um, the abuser. Uh, boy, there, there are a number of things. So it, you, you can't pin it down to just one thing. Um, but there's also the patriarchy is one of the most powerful determinants of any type of violence against women. In years and years of good research, both qualitative and quantitative, show that men who believe that they should be the dominant ones in, in a family, that they should be the ones who have the status and the power over women and children, they're much more likely to be abusive than are men who um, strongly believe in equality, gender equality. The other factor that we found, and, and this, this cuts across different geographic areas um, and is male peer support. Attachments to male peers and the resources they provide that encourage and justify violence against women. Uh, well, 30 years of research... Right this male peer support, I mean, you say rural to me, and I'm thinking, you know, farmers and, uh, um, you know, maybe some school teachers and maybe, you know, uh, but why would male peer support be stronger in those areas than in, in urban areas? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, I don't know if it's stronger. I do know that the patriarchal attitudes and beliefs are stronger because rural communities are more conservative. We have ample data to support that than our urban and suburban areas. And all you have to do is look at the last federal election. Um, so you're asking a very good question. But what I can say is that in colleges, in public housing communities, uh, South Africa, other places that the men who are among the most likely to be abusive have friends who encourage it and who are abusive. Hmm. And there's there's a large body of scientific literature showing that, over 30 years of it. Mm-hmm. So the men who are abusive are not isolated. And uh, less than 10% of men who abuse women in any way suffer from some type of personality disorder or pathology. In fact, they're very well connected. It's like the old adage, birds of a feather flock together. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Makes sense. So I'm sorry I interrupted you, but you were talking about the barriers and the the lack of services in rural areas. And I think, you know, it makes sense because having lived in a rural area most of my life, you don't, you know, I mean, when I grew up, we went to town once a week. You know, it, there wasn't, you weren't seeing people, you know, routinely on a daily basis. When you were in school, the bus picks you up, and then you'd see people on a daily basis, but you had to catch the bus to come home, so there were no after-school activities, et cetera. So if you're an right. adult um, who's dealing with that, you know, I, I can appreciate how the, the lack of services and the, the lack of availability of services and the barriers to get to them are significant. Um, but another question comes to my mind, which is, do we focus on rural services? 
because it seems to me in many areas um, in dealing with a rural area, we just don't, I mean, road repair. Uh, for example, in my county, which is King County um, in Washington State, um, road repair doesn't in, in the rural areas doesn't get the same budget that the urban roads do. Even though those urban people are free to come out on the weekends and go across the rural roads, they do it, they use it, and yet the budgets are different and rural road repair is not budgeted as highly as urban. And that's just one example. So is that the reason that there are no services or not as many services because of uh, rural areas often get shut out? Or do you, did you not yes. be able to? Are yes. you able to con- okay. okay. Yes, I have some very interesting data close to, close to home. Well, talk about roads. You should come to Morgantown, West Virginia. I mean, the potholes are gigantic. Uh, but here, I want to tell you something <laughs> interesting that government funding is typically based on the number of officially reported assaults rather than the percentage. And in Pennsylvania, the rural official per capita rate of sexual assault, that is the number of sexual assaults that are reported to you know uh, criminal justice officials, and they pale in comparison to what the real number is, as you know, um, is higher than the urban one. And But the state of Pennsylvania only allocates Victims of Crime Act funds, not on the per capita rate, but on the absolute numbers. So most U.S. shelters and rape crisis centers do not provide specific training on wife rape, wife rape and separation and divorce sexual assault is not the, the, the result simply of inadequate preparation or lack of knowledge. Um, rural advocates need more money to hire more advocates and to train them, and they need more money for community outreach. Uh, many service providers are you know, spending their own money to fill their cars up with gas to, to reach um, survivors. So funding is very limited. And this, this is interesting. Rural people, are, are many are very angry. And they have every right to be angry. And unfortunately, they often vote for parties that don't have their best interests at heart. And um, this, is, this is something that that's, needs to be analyzed very carefully um, because the, the federal government has not done much, although it promised to to focus on the needs of rural people. I've yet to see, maybe someone can correct me, an increase in funding to those who are trying to alleviate social problems in, in, in rural areas. Oh. Well, I, I would just throw out that, you know, I mean, having been a rural, rural person most of my life, um, funding isn't necessarily the only way that, that problems are solved. Um, so no, they're not. So, um, no, no, you're right. Yeah. I think that that's our go-to position. You know, we always money, money, money. And sometimes (laughs) quite accurately, we need more money, but sometimes there are solutions to problems that don't necessarily come with money. And in fact, sometimes solutions become further and further away, the more money there and more infrastructure and more bureaucracy that there is to work through to try to come up with a, a solution to a problem. So that's just my two cents. I, I could, no, I couldn't agree more. And let me support what you're saying, which is another very important finding 
that we um, are consistently um, uncovering in rural violence against women research. Informal mechanisms of prevention and control, we've known this for years and years, work far better than formal mechanisms. And the three rural communities that I studied in southeast Ohio, what was pretty scary is that on the one hand, they were well organized, these these rural communities, to prevent um, public crimes such as drug dealing and distribution, farm crime, vandalism, and other other public crimes. But they were also very organized in such a way as to um, protect, and I use that word very very carefully. Uh, um, patriarchal domination and control, in other words, to maintain male domination in these communities. And you had originally said when we started talking that one of the questions about your research that when it came out, and I believe that study that you're talking about, about the urban, suburban, and rural variations in separation, divorce, rape, sexual assault, that came out in 2012, I believe. So it's been out for a mm-hmm. and you said one of, one of the criticisms was, well, you did this in Ohio, and so how universal is this? How can, you know, can we really um, uh, say that this is, uh, um, uh, applies to other rural areas? Um, how, how did you answer that? Were there other studies? Were there other, you know, or is that still a, a question? No, it's not. Uh, we, we looked at... Um, 1992 to 2005 um, national crime victimization survey data. We aggregated mm-hmm. them, and we have shown. Now that was at that time when the, the articles you read it was from 1992 to 2005. There's another article that you read that that, that brought me to your attention that goes up to 2015. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely showing, I mean, with, you know, as I said, the second oldest survey in the United States and probably the best national crime victimization survey in the world conclusively shows that rural women are at higher risk of all types of intimate violence than are urban and suburban women. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So I, I and yet, speak with people. Goes- to the urban areas, just like it goes for the road repair, as we were talking, um, because mm-hmm. there's a higher there's a higher number, not necessarily a higher percentage. So, you know, that's something that we need to look at when we're when we're talking about politics and becoming politically active. You know, how do we convince legislators to look at the percentage rather than just the quantity? Because rural areas will never have the same number as high as their urban areas. In any issue, right? The raw number will never be. Yeah, that's right. Um, we also need to factor in. I know this is a controversial issue in the United States, far less so in Canada, where I, where I come from. Is guns? The availability of guns in rural communities is far higher than in urban and suburban places, and. I have a colleague who discovered that the rural hunting subculture also includes, you know, um, norms and values that encourage and justify violence against women. This is not to say that all hunters or most hunters 
um, uh, encourage violence against women. But many hunting expeditions, you know, they're all males, and they work out their issues with women together while they're away from women. And uh, this is something that needs to be considered too. And the presence mm-hmm. of guns is a very strong correlate of lethal and non-lethal violence in rural yeah. U.S. communities. Yeah. Kind of the, the, the elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about. Oh, I think we talk about it a lot. Um, <laughs> nobody's managed to come up with an actual solution, but we talk about it a lot. Um, yeah. But and then, there again, I'm a rural person. You know, I mean, I I I grew up learning how to fire a shotgun, and I you know somehow or other we have to get it out of our heads that there is no good legitimate use for a, a, a firearm um, because there is, especially in those rural areas. Um, but we don't seem to be able to come to grips with it. It seems uh, we just keep making more and more problems and. The problems don't seem to be going away anytime soon, um, but that no, that's no, how and I you know, Canada's a hunting country, big hunting country, and many U.S. citizens cross the border to hunt in Canada. But um, mm-hmm. as I said the and the rural rates, by the way, the rural rates of um, murders of women in this country are higher than in suburban and uh, urban. And most of these murders are committed with guns. Yeah, yeah. And the same in Canada. Um, yeah. Well, and uh, it, interesting, you know, because I, I don't, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I have, I'm a dual citizen of Canada and the United States. Um, are the statistics similar to rural in rural Canada to rural U.S. for yes. IPD? Okay. Um, no, so we're not. We're we don't not know for IPD. We. we we don't know for um, non-lethal forms of violence. We know for lethal forms. We know for murder, yes, the rates are similar. There are higher rates of um, rural women murdered in, in Canada um, than in urban and suburban places. But there has been very little um, rigorous systematic research of non-lethal violence. In fact, the United States is uh, at the, the countries that are most advanced in studying rural violence against women are the United States and Australia. And in Australia, the further you go rural, the higher the rates of overall violence, which is interesting. So the, the further you go away from the... Yeah, go ahead. Because Sorry. I mean, it, it seems to me like that probably makes sense because I mean, the history of the rural areas are you had to take the law into your own hands. There weren't officials to come and and you know take charge. So, um, in the development of a country, you know, a hundred years ago, um, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? That that would be more likely. So, hmm, yeah, okay. Um, well, okay. Australia is a little. A little different, though, because the rates of poverty increase and you have a large, poor Aboriginal population, you know, in the outback. Mm. And so that's uh, and there's a lot of racism in Australia. I mean, it's progressive in many ways, but uh, still, you know, the plight of Aboriginal people warrants much more attention. And um, 
So it's you you find in the rural communities, as you do here in uh, West Virginia. I mean, a considerable amount of 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 poverty, and as you know, poverty is uh, strongly associated with violence against women and other types of violence. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, absolutely. You know, poverty is uh, the root of many many evils. Um, so let's. I, I don't want to get you know terribly focused on on one particular area because it happens sure, to be sure. my particular business, but. You also talk about rape, sexual assault, and uh, uh, are those numbers comparable to the intimate partner violence, or are they significantly different? They're comparable. They're comparable. In fact, most women who are abused, um, their lives exist on what my friend and colleague in the United Kingdom refers to as the continuum of sexual violence. Um, most women who have experienced uh, one type of violence, say a beating, have experienced other types: coercive control, sexual violence. I mean, this is consistent. The research is very clear on this. It actually is. And so, from a policy standpoint, you know, it's really wrong to kind of compartmentalize things on bureaucratic lines. Like, for example, we have rape crisis centers and we have domestic violence centers, but really a person who has experienced one type of abuse has experienced multiple types of abuse. Yeah. Yeah. When we, did you happen to um, uh, look at trauma and how I realize that this might be outside the scope of, of, of your research, but, you know, there's such a focus right now. Thank you, thank you Dr. Folletti, uh, Vincent Folletti, who came up with the ACEs research 30 years ago, and it's finally, finally starting to become part of our everyday vocabulary. But the impact of experiencing trauma in childhood on the rest of our lives has, has suddenly become known, and um, we're all uh, pretty much aware of that. Did you happen to look at trauma as part of your research at all in the yes. rural areas? Yes, 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 What's we did. Um, and it, it, not in my quantitative research, but in the qualitative research, definitely. And the consequences, the traumatic consequences, when you think about the women we interviewed who experienced separation, divorce, sexual assault, the thing that stood out just it was so striking was sexual aversion. Um, what does that mean? Explain that for me. That means they, they don't the, the women that we talked to didn't want to have sex ever again. Okay. Uh, like one woman here, uh, I'll give her the name Rita. That's not her real name, but if I could, for a second, read what she told us. Uh, she said, I could care less if I ever have sex again in my life. I could care less if I ever had another relationship with a man in my life. It scarred me for my life. It's, I think it's physically, mentally, well, maybe not so much physically, but emotionally has scarred me for life. You know, and that's the reason why I don't socialize myself with people. I isolate myself from people because if I don't, I get panic attacks. And the dreams, they, they're never gone. They're never gone. 
I mean, I don't care how much you try to put out of your head. The dreams always bring it back, always. I've been in a sleep clinic where they would videotape me sleeping, being in and out of bed, crawling into a corner, screaming, please don't hurt me, don't shoot me, don't whatever. Wow. Wow. Carol is another person who said, right now I'd have to say sexually I'm probably ruined. I don't ever want to have sex with anyone. No desire to have sex with anyone. And this was a very common theme that emerged from our interviews with these 43 women. And I think that's powerful evidence of trauma. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. Well, um, tell me, I'm, I'm sure that I've missed some of the things that you've discovered in your research and missed asking you about them. Tell me about some of the things that you discovered that we haven't talked about yet. Well, the male peer support, we talked a bit about that. I'm deeply concerned about this from a policy standpoint and a prevention standpoint because men who are abusive in rural communities, as they are in urban communities and suburban, are, are, are very much part of these social networks that encourage and uh, promote um, encourage and justify, I should say, violence against women. So I think we have to target the group or the subcultural phenomena rather than just, you know, look at individual treatment. But something else came up directly related to your question. Pornography. Mm. Consumption of pornography. And today, that's another research area of mine. And I've done a lot of work in that area. A lot of work. And at the risk of sounding self-serving, I have a book that I've published based on a lot of my research, and uh, the average age of uh, the American male who starts consuming pornography is uh, 11. And today's pornography um, is... kidding. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not kidding. As the mother of a son, and I'm just appalled by that. It is frightening. Ah. It really is frightening. And today we live in what my colleague in Texas refers to as a post-playboy world. The vast majority of today's porn is very violent and very racist. Um, 90% of the most popular porn videos, and you know porn so easily to, it's free basically. If you go to these sites like Pornhub and others, but not, there's so much violence in there. And I'm not, you know, stretching the definition of violence. Hair pulling, choking, gagging, uh, painful anal penetration, and tons of verbal aggression. It's very, very... And, and this, this is, you know, with men in our society, North American society, their first exposure to sex is pornography. Again, we're not talking about Playboy. And pornography is the most lucrative industry in the world. The revenues from pornography are more than the combined revenues of Microsoft, Netflix, Apple, Yahoo, and other technological giants. There's more money than the annual sales of baseball, movies, and music combined. There are well over a million so-called sex sites on the Internet with as many as 10,000 being added every week. So we've also done research. This came up. I, didn't, I, I wasn't looking for this. I, I wasn't trying to 
you know, uncover this for any reason, but the women we talked to uh, talked about pornography. Um, they, they talked about it, and uh, 65% of the 43 women we interviewed um, said that their partners consumed pornography, and 30% of the interviewees reported that pornography was involved in sexually abusive events they experienced. Wow. Many of the men you know, tried I to get... I do a lot of research in the field of um, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and it just occurred to me that I have not really ever come across a study about the role of pornography in, in intimate partner violence. There's there's a growing amount of it now, and in fact, there's a number of journals that are dedicated to this. Um, Dignity is one of them, edited by Donna Hughes. Uh, there's uh, uh, Sexualization Media and Society, and uh, Australian research is the best in the world on this, this issue. Um, think about also um, what they refer here as revenge porn. I call it image-based sexual abuse, uh, where you know people take pictures consensually of their partners, and then when a breakup occurs, they, they distribute them on the Internet Without their partner's mm-hmm. consent, that that's a widespread mm-hmm. problem. That that's just crazy mm-hmm. on a level that yeah, we've done I a, just can't a imagine. show on the whole revenge porn thing, and uh, that is just so alarming. Um, it is. It is. There, you know. I and but, to me, I mean, fortunate. I'm not raising small children anymore, but I, I think that I would advise any of my children to never ever consent. Um, to having a video taken, you know, <laughs> because you just don't. Yeah, know, no, absolutely, you know. absolutely. And, you know, but, these but, young people will take pictures and text them and tweet them and post them, and somehow or other they think they'll just appear like a piece of paper in the wind, and they're always there, always. Only somebody else has control of it, and I, it's a, a huge issue, I think. So. Okay, oh, so what you're telling me is that I need to do uh, some. Uh, I need to puff up my research and, and do some more studying and looking at seeing what's, what's happening with the role of pornography and intimate partner violence. And, and I think I knew anecdotally, you know, that this was a, a, a contingent, you know, an, an offshoot, but I considered it more of an outlier. I, I guess I have to. No, it's an integral part of it, especially among college students, but we also have data, you know, the, the world has changed, right? We, we, we're a heavy-duty, high-tech yeah. society. So the boundaries between rural and urban areas have kind of, in some ways, diminished with the advent of the Internet, cell phones. So, you know, w- there's evidence coming out of Canada that rural boys consume pornography at higher rates than urban and suburban boys. But certainly... My my Ohio research shows uh, that pornography is a key role, plays a key role. And my colleague Amanda Hall Sanchez, who did another study in southeast Ohio, rural southeast Ohio, found that. And we've published the results in leading journals. So this is not anecdotal stuff. This This is really something to worry about. And there's also a whole genre of rural porn. I mean, everything is pornified. Um, so you have, you know, uh, 
tons of videos of rural farm girls and traveling salesmen yeah. coming through and all kinds of stuff. Now, I was thinking when and, you said the, the consumption of pornography is higher in rural areas, um, I was thinking, well, do, do they just have more time on their hands? I mean, I always thought, here's my prejudice, I always thought growing up around animals, I mean, it, it, sex is not something that rural children find shocking. I mean, they, they see it with, you know, cows and, you know, I mean, it, it's there. And I always thought that that was kind of a, a good uh, protector against uh, something like a fascination with pornography, but who am I? I? I am obviously still that little rural farm girl who's naive about these things, you know. Um, no, no, why? no. A lot of, you know what? No, you know, you'd be shocked. I have given workshops and presentations to practitioners, violence against women practitioners who have years of experience, dedicated people, and they were unaware of pornography's impact and I think the reason why the primary reason why is that folks like you and me um, try to be you know progressive people try to be around good people who aren't sexist racist homophobic and we don't want to be exposed to this stuff but what has happened is while we're trying to you know do the right thing this whole industry has you know crept in and it's big. It's a, they lobby on the hill. Uh, it, it's really t- t- terrifying. So it's not that we put our heads in the sand. We were just, I think, trying to do the right thing. But meanwhile, this industry just has flourished. And I don't. And that the bus is gone. Is- yeah, I think that, you know, we tend to think, as you said, you know, the, the people who just try to mind their own business and be good people and not bother other people, uh, we, you tend to think or we've been trained to think that pornography is just something that's between other people and as long as it's within their realm, it, that's not hurting me. And uh, But it does hurt other people. It hurts our culture. It hurts society. I mean, I listened to... I, I, I was tickled over the Christmas holidays because I, I saw a segment somewhere. I don't know whether it was on the internet or news or whatever, but they played that the Christmas carol, that old 1940s or 30s Christmas carol about baby, it's cold outside. And right. the guy's basically saying, no, oh, you don't want to leave. Come on, stay here, you know. And they played a section of that and interviewed young people and asked them whether that song should be banned. And overwhelmingly, the young people said, yes, that's coercive, and the guy is t- clearly just trying to, you know, get her to, to, to bully her, and they should ban that song. That's a bad song. We shouldn't play that song anymore. And then the interviewer said, well, what about rap? And he played some rap songs that are very common that you hear all the time that are so egregiously sexist and violent and said, should we ban these? And overwhelmingly, the young people said, well, no, because no, because this is from a different era. It's no, this is okay. It's that stuff from, you know, uh, with baby, it's cold outside. That, and I'm thinking, do you hear yourself? You know, <laughs> do you hear yourselves? I mean, is that how our minds just work? We justify the stuff that we want and the stuff that we don't well, care that, about. Yeah. See, it, it just boggled my mind that, that these young folks could not see any correlation. They could not see any reason 
to ban, they, you could ban that song, but not the kind of songs that I listen to, even though they're egregious. So, well, this know. is anyway. This is yeah. No, you're onto something. Um, uh, there was there's a very powerful documentary um, created by Byron Hurt, and it's titled Beats and Rhymes, and it's about rap music. And um, he was very interested in in rap, but and and enjoyed it. But as you know, in the '80s, when it first started, it was very political, and it was about the oppression of of African American people in inner cities and people like Queen Latifah and Ice T and Ice Cube and so on. They they, they all came together, in fact, in around 1988 to create this video titled we're headed for self-destruction which was shown on mtv quite frequently in fact uh fab five freddy had a great show yo mtv raps and uh the the video headed for self-destruction was very much informed by malcolm x and concerned about you know intra-racial homicide and black on black homicide was a leading cause of death at that time and uh, African-American men were lucky to live past the age of 18. And the, the CDC even referred to this as a form of cultural genocide. And then so Byron Hurt was very concerned about how did we move from being very political and socially conscious to being misogynistic. And in this video, he, he interviews leading rap artists, and they said they couldn't get a contract if they weren't sexist and misogynist. And the frightening thing is many of the, the companies that, that produce this rap music are controlled and dominated by, by white executives. And some of them women, not very many, but some of them women. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, but the same I'm, in you porn. Know, the, yeah, yeah. Same in um, porn, but I mean... Uh, yeah, there there are women that, uh, you know, I was having a discussion with my son just the other day, and he was saying how, um, well, I, I, it doesn't matter, but I said, you know, it, it seems to me um, that when I was younger, and it's still happening, that in order to, there was a saying that for a woman to be, um, a woman had to be twice as good to be considered half, uh, half as good, um, mm, or a woman had right. to work, work twice as hard to be paid half as much, and I think that... Uh, a number of women, a large component of women, um, took that so to heart that they kind of outmailed the males. And I'm thinking of, for example, judges in family courts. I mean, I don't see, I haven't seen a study. I have seen one partial study that partially ad- addressed that issue. Um, but anecdotally, you know, the women judges are so hard on the women. They are so hard. And you would think that they would have a softer heart, but I think they're trying to prove. That no 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 see we're not prejudiced we're not cutting her slack just because she's one of our gender you know and it, it's just so staggering to me um, how women can participate in these things but I guess you know money is money right um, anyway we we've really taken off I want to get back to um, more of the the rural thing how does all of this differ for rural you know the you mentioned that in uh, the pornography that rural boys um, view it uh, more more than than urban, or at least spend more time viewing it. Uh, what about girls? You know, there's always been a long-term discussion about pornography for girls, but um, is that coming more to the forefront? And if so, does that lead to violence? 
does pornography lead to violence? That's kind of the age-old thing, isn't it? So, okay, take it away. <laughs> yeah, well, you make, see, make a question out of that mishmash. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know what? You've asked a good question, and I'm not patronizing you or being gratuitous with a compliment. You, you know, as you know this very well, studying violence against women, there was a time, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s where all the work was very laboratory oriented and divorced from the real world. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, experimental psychologists controlled this, the conditions within the lab. Now we've got, you know, good survey research that shows that pornography is powerfully correlated with violence against women. It's a powerful correlate. I'm not saying a direct cause because the world is complex. It's multivariate. But there, there are, there, we now have a large body of international research from Italy, from Norway, from Canada, from the United States, other places showing that porn definitely plays a role. It's connected. And the men who are abusive um, do have a record of of consuming porn. And today's porn is complete. I I don't want to get into shock theater and details and all of that, but the the listeners will have to trust my judgment. But um, it's really disturbing it's really disturbing, yeah. and this is their first exposure to sex. And the the porn that we saw, you know, prior to the you know this this new millennium, it was like films. Uh, they called them features, and they would imitate uh, popular films. So take Star Wars. So you'd have a porn film titled Star Wars and the actors would dress up like the characters in Star Wars and there'd be music and kind of a theme. Today they call them gonzos, which just get right to the point and there's body punishing sex and, and, Mm. and, you know, there's no mutual um, uh, expression of, of, of passion. And so this is, there's no dance, is what you're saying. It's just yes, uh, yes. You know, that's the yeah, best way. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's no dance at all. In fact, it gets right to the point of of degradation, and that's the yeah. whole purpose of it. <laughs> that's the whole purpose. And I'm not making a moral judgment. If if someone wants to do their you own research okay and examine, it really is okay to make a moral judgment. <laughs> When something is proven to be detrimental to a huge chunk of the population, I think it's just fine to be judgmental about it, uh, quite frankly. Um, And I find that I'm very judgmental about it. Um, I just think that so much of the music and movies and things that I I have heard about and seen uh, are very degrading to women. And I find it incongruous in a time when we are more than ever before paying attention to some of the behaviors that have uh, threatened women for so long. You know, I mean, I'm thinking the hashtag Me Too movement where, 
You know, it's not right. just the vicious rape we're talking about. It's, you know, those assaults against those, those, those minor, um, you know, things that accumulate to shape a person's personalities and behaviors. And we're, we're recognizing that, but yet at the same time, our music and our, our films and, uh, you know, seems to be uh, preaching just the opposite. So I don't know. I want to get back to the IPV issue. Um, you mm. had in one of your studies, or one—I guess it was a, a, actually a, a speech that you gave—you um, had talked about the sociological basis or research for IPV, and suggested, unless I read this incorrectly, that there's another way to look at it besides sociological. Um, are you recalling what I'm thinking of? Oh, not really, because I'm a, I am a sociologist. So. <laughs> well, uh, I I think that you know, I mean, there's different ways to look at things: psychological, sociological, you know, yeah, medically, right, you know, right. that kind of thing. And in in your um, uh, speech that you gave, uh, um, I, I forget where it was. Oh, to the British Society of Criminology, um, you had mentioned that you know we've looked at it, uh, IPV from the sociological orientation. Um, which was informed, uh, here it is, but informed mainly by feminist ways of knowing and relies primarily mm. on qualitative methods. And I guess you were making mm. the point that, you know, back when we first started researching domestic violence 30, 40 years ago, um, it was all quantitative. And as you were pointing out the, in the lab, and then we moved more to the, toward that sociological orientation. What's the benefit of doing that? Well, you know, the problem is so widespread. Um, from a policy standpoint, and I'm always concerned about producing useful knowledge. Now, and I know you are too, based on our previous conversations. I mean, what what type of research can we produce that's useful and meaningful and that the uh, general public can understand? And one of the things that I think we all need to understand that this problem is not a marginal problem. The rates are alarmingly high. And that we won't cure this problem through individualistic solutions, through counseling alone or you know, locking people up. We have to look at our culture. And we have a culture that I think is very, very biased against women and that promotes violence against women. For example, the rates of... I I, I did a study at a a campus, a very large campus. The data are generalizable to the entire campus population. We have a rate of sexual assault of 34%. That's... Staggering. Staggering. It is. And the results have been published in the British Journal of Criminology, which is one of the, the among the top four best criminology journals in the world. Very rigorous peer review. So that tells me there's something going on about our culture, something going on about our society. If it was only 2%, I'd be the first to say, look, we have to have you know, improved counseling services for offenders. Maybe these people are just outliers. But it's very disturbing. Uh, There's something that's going on. Uh, And I want to mention something, too. Um, 
that I often talk to people, getting, I'm going to connect the dots between pornography and, 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 and the large-scale nature of violence against women. If we saw movies, popular films, that depicted the Holocaust in an approving way, we would be outraged, wouldn't we? There would be like oh, demands. Right. If we showed films that depicted slavery and lynching in an approving way, there'd be just great moral outrage, right? Well, take, Am I wrong that about that? And I think you're absolutely right. And I'm thinking uh, animals. If we showed the abuse of animals the, and the use of animals, yeah, that's it, right. they would be beside themselves. They would be. And, and you see the credits at the end of a film that no animal was harmed mm-hmm. in the production of this film and the SPCA. So my question, my next question is, why is it that we don't have moral outrage about films depicting the gang rape of a woman by eight men, a woman put in a cage um, while someone's raping her? I mean, I, I could provide you with all kinds of scenarios. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's right. Why? Um, but do you, you know, know what I mean? And to build on that, to build on that question, and I think it's a very good question: is why are so many women convinced that it's not okay to be outraged by by those depictions? Why have we been convinced that we are liberal, free thinking, open minded, etc., if we are not outraged by those kinds of films and messages? Well, they're scared. Uh, They're scared of being marginalized, discriminated against. I mean, we've got, you know, um, Ann Coulter and others who were highly celebrated. I think the bulk of women know that this is hurtful and they're being discriminated against. I think they're trying to survive in a, a very patriarchal society. Um, they're, they're scared of being marginalized. And with the labor market being the way it is, we have a high uh, reserve army of labor, of highly educated people who are graduating from college with a mortgage payment, more or less. And I think it's a survival mm-hmm. mechanism. I, I, I think they know, women know in their hearts and their minds that this stuff is not good. But they're scared of being marginalized. Yeah, well, I think that's one explanation. I I see a lot, I work with a lot of young women. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I'm an old baby boomer. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I I remember bell bottoms and, you know, (laughs) and tie-dye. Join the club. Yeah, yeah, I wore those too. And marching, uh, you know, uh, for, um, you know, women's lib, which is what we called it back then. And Mm-hmm. I sometimes mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just I just look at some of these young women and I think really, really, you just I think they think that the battle has been won. They can get any job they want, um, uh, you know, so they don't have to fight to be a firefighter. They don't have to, to be a police officer. They don't have to do any of that stuff. And I think they think the battle was done, and so now they can just rest on their laurels or whatever. I, and I don't see the outrage. I just don't see it. I'm starting to see it. I don't either. I don't. Yeah. I don't I, either. I see it a little I bit in the hashtag Me Too movement, but, but that's for a small segment, and it's for one area. It's not, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Now I'm getting on my soapbox. 
<laughs> which was no, not you're my not. Intent. You're right. I teach, I teach young people, and I ask a question. Even in the violence against women class that I teach every year, I ask people, "How many of you identify publicly identify as feminists?" And most people don't put up their hands. And so, I ask the women, "How many of you?" Um, believe that there should be equal pay for the same type of work. They all put up their hands. How many Mm. of you believe that you should be judged um, on the merit of your skills and your education? They all put up their hands. How many Mm. of you feel that um, women should be given equal status in, in campaigning for political office? They all put up their hands. And I go, nah, 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 you're a feminist. And then I ask them. <laughs> Own it. Own it, girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> then I ask them, like, why are, and they go, well, you know, it's such a derogatory word, feminism. I, you know, it's, no. I want equity for everyone and blah, you know, it goes on and on. But you could see the fear, the fear of marginalization. Um, and you're right. You know, many think we've made it. Uh, but they haven't. And, you know, I mean, there's so much Mm -hmm. inequality. I want to add one thing, because I know we've got to end soon. By the way, the the rates of rural violence against women are very high in other parts of the world, too, especially in the global south. One of the things I've spent 33 years studying different types of violence against women, and there are some serious commonalities about violence against rural women around the world. So many similarities, isolation, lack of public transportation, Mm -hmm. absence of social services, patriarchal practices. There is a glue that brings women from around the world, rural women who've been victimized around the world together. And if if I was to be very optimistic, and there's a part of me that is, I think that this rural violence against women movement, if it's worldwide, it could make a difference. I really do. I think regardless of what language you speak. Yeah. With that in mind, are you planning any other research, perhaps worldwide research? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm planning. I've put together a study now. We don't know much about this, about the characteristics of men who are gun owners and violence against women. That's my next study. That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, you were right. Unfortunately, we do have to end our time. I'm looking at our clock, and I'm going, wow, we kind of went all over the board, but I think we managed to stay somewhat on the rural issue, uh, which is is dear to my heart. And I appreciate your looking into this, because as I said, that's an area I think that has been overlooked, I think. Um, and it's not just this issue. I think that city folk tend to think everybody's a city folk and that everybody's the same as them. Um, and, right. and we're not, you know, we, we country folks sometimes have some, some different issues and, uh, or at least different ways of experiencing those issues. So I really appreciate your looking into this. I'll look forward to getting um, uh, updates on your research as we go along, and hopefully you'll have time to come back and talk to us about those as we go along. I, I would love to. It's an honor to be on your show, and, and uh, I really enjoyed it so much. 
Thank you. Well, thank you very, very much, Dr. Walter DeCassaretti. I appreciate your research. I appreciate your talking with us. And uh, please, I appreciate you listening as well. So join us again next week on Three Women, Three Ways. <laughs>